We actually have a guest speaker today, and I am so, so thrilled um, to be introducing Pastor Dave Jung. Uh, Paul and I had the privilege of um, doing church and life with her, uh, with Joanne and um, Dave and Alexis for a couple months, and it's just, um, I know he just nurtured us, um, shepherded us, and so I'm so excited that you're here to guest speak for us, um, and no further ado. Pastor Dave. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks, Tiffany. Hi, good morning, Renee Church. How are you? Good, good. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you so much for allowing me to come and to give you the word. Uh, what I'd like to do is, uh, if we could uh, find a partner, uh, Wilson was telling me that you guys do this all the time, so this isn't going to be a problem, and uh, answer this. I'll give you about five minutes, okay? And I want you to answer, what do you think of when you hear the word evangelism, Okay. What do you think of when you hear the word evangelism? And please share a story or experience where evangelism has affected you, impacted you, transformed you, you know, whatever it is, negative or positive experience, if you could share with the person beside you, okay, for five minutes, what you think of when you hear the word evangelism. Let's do that right now. Can we do that? All right. If I could get your attention back, please. Yeah, that was five minutes. I think if I let you talk for 10 minutes, you probably talk for 15. That's pretty cool. Two guys are like this. My name is Dave Jung. Uh, I'm actually a friend of Wilson's. We've been friends for a long time. I actually am the one who started Happy Family Time. So you can blame me for that. Yes, yes. Oh, some of you like it. That's great. You know, we do it sometimes, and people are like, oh, man, happy family time. But I think it's important to be able to share the love of Christ with one another. Amen? Amen. 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 So it's really glad, I'm really glad that uh, I can be here with you, uh, covering for Wilson. And Wilson actually shared with me that I can preach on anything that I want, okay? Anything that the Lord's laid out in my heart. So I want to preach about the thing that I'm most passionate about, the thing that I really believe the church needs to hear, the church needs to be reminded of, and the church needs to uh, live in full force. And that is the area that we just talked about for five minutes, the area of evangelism. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to look at a very familiar passage of Scripture, one that you're probably, if you've gone to Sunday school, you've been to church your whole life, you've heard again and again. But I want to remind you of it, and I want it to impact you in a way that as you leave here, that you would see the importance of this area of evangelism. So if you take your Bibles, turn to John chapter 4, whether you're using your devices or anything like that, turn to John chapter 4. When we talk about being missional, and this church renews all about being missional, I've talked to Wilson many times about this, and I know that's his heart. When we talk about being missional, when we talk about this area of sharing our faith, going out, right, being missionaries to this culture, we see that John chapter 4 is where our Lord shows us, as the perfect regenerate man, he shows us what it means to reach a person one-on-one with the gospel. So what we want to do is we want to look at the points of how our Lord was able to evangelize to a Samaritan woman. So the first point I want you to look at, and if you're taking notes, you can write this down, is that our Lord took every opportunity to evangelize in the realm of everyday life. Let me say that one more time. It's very important, okay? Our Lord took every opportunity to evangelize in the realm of everyday life. And missional evangelism is shared in the everyday, 
in the daily experience. Let me begin reading in verse 1. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Verse 4. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near a plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat by the well. It was about noon, verse 7. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? Verse 8. His disciples had gone into town to buy food. Now, this is an awesome passage when you realize that Jesus broke through barriers in order to evangelize this person. That Jesus broke through several or many barriers in order to evangelize to this Samaritan woman. Let's look at this, that Jesus broke through the ethnic barrier. In this verse, we see that he was becoming a very popular Jewish teacher or a Rebbe. And here, the religious leaders caught wind of him. They were learning about him. They were hearing about him. Jesus knew that his time hadn't come to confront the religious establishment, that he knew his mission was to go to the cross, right? But it wasn't now. And so he decided to retreat back to Galilee from Judea. Now in verse 4, it says, Jesus had to go through Samaria. Now this is important. I want you to mark this. You might say, well, why is so important? What's so important about it? I want you to do me a favor. Would you take your hand, right or left, and I want you to put it on your head. Would you do that? Okay, this symbolizes that you're going to take off your Dodger baseball cap. How many Dodger fans? Raise your hand. Okay, Dodger fan. How many of your Angels fans? Raise your hand. Okay, good, good. There's none, nobody here that's Angels fans. Okay, take your Dodger baseball cap and take it off, would you? Okay, put it beside you or throw it away, whatever. If, you're, if it's an Angels cap, throw it away, all right? But just put it down. And I want you to now put on the first century Hebrew yarmulke. Can you put that on right now? Or the sudra. What you have done is you've taken off the 21st century understanding of the Bible. And sometimes that's what we do. We come into it with our 21st century understanding. And we're seeking the first century understanding or what the Bible meant in this particular uh, context. Okay, It's very important that we contextualize. So what we're doing is we're understanding this from a first century Jewish perspective, right? And so understanding this is very important because I want you to notice the view of Jesus' time, okay? Now, geographically, Judea was in the south. Galilee was in the north. So if Jesus goes from Judea to Galilee, sandwiched in the middle is this area called Samaria. So it makes sense, right, that the logical route, right, from point A to point B would be a straight line. That's what he was doing. But... Now we understand the first century understanding. You have your yarmulke on, right? That no self-respecting Jew ever stepped through Samaria. That no good Jew would even put his foot on this piece of land called Samaria, although it was the logical way. Instead, what the Jews would do is they would cross the Jordan River into uh, Decapolis or Perea, Then they would go up to Decapolis and cross the Jordan River again. So they would bypass Samaria altogether if they wanted to go from Judea to Galilee. That was the way to do it, yet Jesus doesn't do it. 
Now, why would the people do this? Okay, Because there was a long-standing hatred between the Jews and Samaritans. Now, don't get bored. I'm going to get a little historical, okay? And this is important so you can kind of understand this, okay? We've got that yarmulke on, that first century yarmulke. Historically, Israel at one time was divided into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. In 720 BC, the Assyrian Empire conquered all the nations around it and were able to conquer the northern kingdom. They couldn't conquer the southern, right? And if you have, if you know your Bibles, you'll understand later. I don't have time to talk about that, but they conquered the northern kingdom. And what they did when they conquered it was they took almost uh, a large majority, almost most of the people, and they exiled them. They took them out of the land. Then what they did was they took uh, peoples from other lands they had conquered, and they transplanted them into the northern kingdom. And the reason they did this, the Assyrians were smart, was they didn't want insurrections. And so they didn't want any inherent nationalism of a person from a nationality saying, we're Jews and we, we, you know, we're going to come together and we're going to fight Assyria. They didn't want that. So what they did was they transplanted all these other peoples who don't have this nationalism and they started intermarrying with one another. They started mixing with one another. And this was a way to cool down the empire. Pretty smart, wasn't it? Right? But that's what happened. And so these southern kingdom Jews who weren't conquered by Assyria, in time saw these northerners as a mixed people with all these culture, different cultures, customs, rituals, and even religions all mixing together. And they saw the idolatry. They saw the mixing, the multiculturalism, the multi-ethnicity. And they saw this idolatry as evil, or it's understandable that they thought that way, and they started seeing them as evildoers. As a matter of fact, by the time we get to the first century, these people called the Samaritans, that's what they were called, right? These mixed people were seen as half-breeds. They were actually called mongrel dogs in regular conversation. Not the cool, you're my dog, right? Not that, but you guys are dogs, right? You guys are, you guys are not even human. And that's what they thought. And Samaria was a cursed land to every Jew that, uh, that, that was there in that context. And here, it was in this context that Jesus had to go to Samaria. Can I get an amen? Here, Jesus had to go. It was his divine opportunity that Jesus was taking to evangelize. Jesus broke that ethnic barrier. Number two, Jesus broke the cultural barrier. Let's look in verse 5. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar. Near a plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon when a Samaritan woman came to draw water. Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. Here Jesus converses with a woman. Now again, What's so strange about that? Well, you took your Dodger baseball cap off, right? You've got your yarmulke on. You've got to understand the view of women in Jesus' time. The first century world was conquered by the Romans, but we call it the Hellenistic world because the predominant culture was still Greek, okay? Romans ruled, but Romans even, uh, as, as well as the rest of the world, understood Greek culture as the highest culture. Now, the great a philosopher who had long been dead by then of the Hellenistic world was a man by the name of Aristotle. And this is what Aristotle says about women. Now, this is not what I say, okay? This is what Aristotle says. 
that physically a female is a deformed male. (gasps) The male seed implanted in the female will naturally produce male offspring unless the seed is defective or affected negatively, right? So what was Aristotle saying? Naturally, men, that's the goal. But sometimes you have accidents and women show up, right? Sometimes that happens, right? And that's why in the first century you see extreme cases where if a, if a girl was born, an infant was born, sometimes they left them out to die. Because in that time, women were seen as deformed, as accidents, as unimportant. Now, that's not me speaking. That's Aristotle, okay? So don't get mad at me. Now, you would say, well, surely in the first century, God's people with the light of Torah, with God's will and God's, would never think this way of women, right? Would never have the wrong view of women. Well, the Rebbe's, the spiritual leaders uh, would say, and here's a prayer that the Rebbe's would pray, blessed art you, O God, who did not make me, among other things, a woman. Oh, God, you blessed me where I'm not a woman, right? Here was a saying that the rabbis or the rabbis would say, it's better for the Torah, God's word, to be burned than to be taught to a woman. Socially, rabbis never talked to women for fear that they would lose their reputation. There was a group of Pharisees that were so self-righteous, they would call themselves the, the bruised and the bleeding Pharisees. The reason for this is anytime they would walk in the marketplace, if they saw a woman, they would close their eyes and they would walk into walls or pillars and they would bruise themselves and they took that as a badge of honor. I didn't look at that woman, right? That woman was beneath me. Listen, there's a saying uh, among the rabbis: let no man talk to a woman in the street, not even wife or daughter or sister. And in the same sentence, never, never talk to a Samaritan. Who was Jesus speaking to? A woman who was a Samaritan. The Mishnah said that the daughters of the Samaritans are unclean from the cradle and are therefore perpetually, ceremonially unclean. Imagine being referred to as perpetually unclean, perpetually separated from God because of your race. This is the woman that Jesus was speaking to. Jesus broke the cultural barrier. Not only that, but I want you to also see that Jesus broke the outcast barrier. Now, it's interesting to note that this woman from Sychar came to Jacob's well at noontime to draw water. Okay, Sychar is half a mile from Jacob's well. There were closer springs to this lady, but she goes half a mile out of her way at 12 noon. Now, we live in a semi-desert culture. We know how hot right? Noontime gets. And we know that we don't want to be doing anything physically strenuous in noontime, but this is where this woman was. As a matter of fact, in a desert culture, right, women would gather either early in the morning or they would gather late uh, at, at dusk before the sunset, and they would meet together in large groups so that they could talk and gossip and socialize. But this woman was coming midday with nobody. You know what that tells us? That this woman was an outcast. That she was shunned and isolated by the rest of the Samaritans. Think about this. Here, the Samaritans are shunned, and now this lady is even shunned by the Samaritans. 
This is the kind of woman that Jesus comes to. Does Jesus not know this? He knows it because we see in Scripture. Yet it doesn't matter to him because these were the very people that he came for. Can I get an amen? Amen. The Bible says that he was a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That he came to seek and to save those who were lost. Let me ask you, are we like our Lord today? Are there barriers that you have in your life that keep you from sharing the gospel, from evangelizing? Is there an ethnic barrier? I've had people tell me, I'm afraid of a certain ethnicity, and so I'm uncomfortable in sharing with that ethnicity. Is it a cultural barrier where you're saying, well, I shouldn't talk to my boss at work. We should keep things separate, shouldn't we? I mean, it's not good to do that. Culturally, it's not acceptable. Is there an outcast barrier where you just look at somebody and goes, that person will never become a Christian. That person is far gone. I mean, that person is a heathen, right? There are barriers that God asks us to break in our lives. And we come in contact with these barriers every day in the realm of everyday life. If there's anything that Jesus teaches us is that we need to break the barriers in order to evangelize. Can I get an Amen. Yeah, this is great, right? I remember when I was 20 years old, I was in college. The first time that I understood this idea, I was so stirred. I'm an emotional person, so I was so stirred that I left my college campus and I said, Lord, I'm going to live this out. So the first person I come in contact with, I'm going to share the gospel. As I was walking, lo and behold, the first person I laid my eyes on is actually four guys, four gangsters. How did I know they were gangsters? Because it was in the early 90s where they looked like gangsters, okay? They, they had the blue, you know, bandanas on, and they had, you know, uh, these, these, you know, outfits. Here I am in my polo and everything, and these were gangsters, okay? And these gangsters were playing gangster basketball, okay? And what I mean by that is they were playing basketball, and when one guy would go to the hoop, everybody would slam him. I mean, they would just like punch him and knock him down, and then they would yell and scream, and they would laugh all together, right? <laughs> you know? And I was thinking, oh my Lord, these are the first people that I came to meet. And I'm thinking to myself, if they do that to their friends, what would they do to me, right? So I'm thinking, you know what? Maybe I'll just go farther, find some elderly people that can't hurt me. Maybe I'll share the gospel. But the Holy Spirit really began to speak to my heart. Talk to these four guys, four gangsters, right? I was afraid. They were of a, you know, uh, ethnicity. They were using the F word. I always get scared when people use the F word too much, right? I, I, I'm like, oh, you're scary. You know, you're tough. I don't mess with people. Who use the, They're using F words constantly, right? And I'm thinking to myself, what am I going to do? But I, by faith, went over there. I don't even know what I said. But I spent time with them for about an hour. And to my surprise... After I shared the gospel, and I must have shared the gospel because those four actually got down, knelt to the ground, and prayed to receive Jesus into their life. Let me share with you. Thank you. Thank you. It's okay. It's all right. Because it wasn't me. I was so scared. I don't even know what I said, but I believed that God could break those barriers. And I, even though I was scared, was able to share the gospel, and God did the rest. Can I get an Amen. God does those things. And God calls us to break barriers. Our Lord took every opportunity to evangelize in the realm of everyday life. Let's look at the second point. Our Lord took every effort to persevere in evangelism. Okay, Missional evangelism is always passionate, persistent perseverance. 
And it's amazing when you look at how Jesus demonstrates divine love to this woman. The beauty of this story is that most Christians would have given up on this woman, but not Jesus. Jesus is the expert fisherman. I like to call him the expert sport fisherman. How many of you have gone deep sea fishing before? Would you raise your hand? Okay, some of you, guys and girls, that's so cool. That's one of my passions. I love it. I've caught yellowtail and cod, and I've caught mackerel. I've caught halibut. I've caught all kinds of different things. But one fish that I've never caught before is a marlin. I've never caught a marlin, and I've always dreamed of catching a marlin. I've seen it on TV, right, FS1 or something. You know, I've seen them catch marlin, and it just seems so exciting. So someday, one day, okay, I'm going to be able to do this. But let me share with you, when you're catching a marlin, it's different from when you're catching a mackerel. Because when you catch a marlin, you don't just reel it up and say, here you go, right? I hear, and I've seen, that marlin take an hour or two or three or four hours of persistently fighting, persistently you know, going after that thing until finally you bring it up. And it's always you're exhausted after you catch this thing. And everyone who's caught marlin or swordfish, they always hold it up as a trophy, take pictures with it, get it stuffed, put it on their office. Why? Because it was so exhilarating just having to go through the process of catching something like this. Can I share with you, evangelism is like that. Evangelism is persistency as we persevere in sharing the gospel and seeking to win them to Christ. And we are called as fishers of men. We are called to do this. I want you to notice the dialogue that Jesus has with this woman. And I want you to notice that he keeps on keeping on. She rejects pretty much every one of his appeals, but he keeps going. And I want you to look at the appeals of Jesus. And if you're taking notes, you can write this down. Here we see an appeal to the woman's kindness. Let's look in verse 7. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? Here Jesus breaks the ice. Right? He asks for a favor. He has no bucket. He's thirsty. But this is a way actually to converse, small talk with this woman. Notice, excuse me, the woman's response. Verse 9. The Samaritan woman, said to, uh, Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? The response is defensiveness. And look at the editorial. Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Now, when we're sharing the gospel... We've got to understand that sometimes our appeals can backfire. I've been on a college campus where the minute I share that I'm a Christian, I hear, oh, you voted for Trump, didn't you? I can tell. You look like a right-wing Republican, right? Or, oh my gosh, you are an AK-47 owner, aren't you? Oh, I know you love, you know, AR-14s. You're a Second Amendment person. You're a weirdo, right? Or, oh, you're homophobic. The minute I share that I'm a Christian and nothing else, the defenses go up. But I want you to notice that here Jesus doesn't stop because she gets uh, defensive. And anytime we share the gospel, there's going to be resistance. There's spiritual warfare involved, right? The kingdom of darkness doesn't want that person to come to the kingdom of light. And so we have to expect that, right? An appeal to the woman's kindness. Secondly, an appeal to the woman's curiosity. Let's look in verse 10. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Here Jesus piques her curiosity by using a mashal, a rabbinic veiled saying. 
What he's saying is, I know where you can get this great living water, and he's talking about himself. I want you to notice her response. And I'm going to say it the way she said it, okay? Verse 11, sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the water is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as also did his son and livestock? The response is sarcasm. This is not an innocent question. This is a verbal hand grenade. It's a loaded question that's full of controversy. Now, when we share the gospel, sometimes people are going to get sarcastic. They're going to get cynical. They are going to get controversial with us. They're going to say, how can you Christians talk to me about love? I went to church long ago, and they're just a bunch of hypocrites, right? It's designed to get you out of the way. And think of it this way. Remember that this Samaritan woman responds from the pain and the discrimination that she's experienced with every Jew she's ever met. And so our Lord doesn't stop because, because she becomes sarcastic. He just keeps reeling her in. Notice the appeal to the woman's desire. That's the next appeal. Verse 13. And Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Here, Jesus, and he's a master at this, right? He takes a material need, something physical, and then he focuses on the spiritual. That's really what the parables are, starting from where a person can understand and bringing spiritual truth, right? Notice the response of this woman, verse 15. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. The response is misunderstanding. Hey, you have this physical water? I want it. Why don't you give it to me? Sometimes when we share the gospel, someone's not going to understand the first time or the second or even the fifth or the tenth time. Sometimes people aren't going to understand. And hey, listen, there's a reason for that. But do we stop and say, well, I think that person is not elect and then just go on to somebody else? No. If there's anything our Lord teaches us is that we, like sport fishermen, passionately, persistently reel that person in. Okay? Appeal to the woman's conscience. Let's look at it in verse 16. And then he told her, go call your husband and come back. Here Jesus probes with a personal request. Now it's not that he's uh, requesting out of ignorance, right? We know that Jesus knows the facts. We see it in the scripture later on. He says this to get a reaction from this woman. He says this to get conviction from this woman. Jesus is drawing her out by her conscience. Now, I want you to notice the response. The response is misinformation. Verse 17, I have no husband, she replied. It is short. It is curt. She understands how uncomfortable she feels. She understands where she is. She doesn't want to talk about it. And she deflects because she's under conviction. She knows her sin. Her deep-seated need, listen to me, is for forgiveness, to be clean from sin. But does Jesus stop because she's uncomfortable? And I want to share this with you. When we share the gospel, there is going to come a point where our worldview collides with the other person's worldview. And they're going to feel uncomfortable. You know, And it's not now about just giving them food or giving them candy or doing a service for them. It's now sharing the gospel. Do we stop because it's uncomfortable? No. The Bible says that we consistently keep reeling. And Jesus keeps doing this. Verse 18, 
Jesus said to her, you are right when you say that you have no husband. The fact is that you had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Look at it this way. Here, Jesus commends her honesty, but he continues to show her her need. It's like he gently holds a mirror up to her face and says, this is what you look like. This is what you need. You don't need physical water. You need inner healing. You need to be clean. And I want you to notice the response of this woman. It's very interesting. Verse 19, have you ever read this and not understood? Listen to this. Sir, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but the Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Have you ever read that and thought, what in the world? Here Jesus is talking about living water. He's talking about himself. And she starts talking about mountains. She starts talking about Jerusalem. I mean, what's going on here? You know what she's doing? Her response to the conviction in her heart is religion. Her response, and this is the response of every person when they're convicted by the gospel, it's religion. You see, her deep-seated need is to be free from guilt and sin. Her need is to be clean, right? But the response to every person is religion. What can I do? What can, you know, how can I, Jesus, where can I go to from, for religious guidance? The Jews say it's Jerusalem. We think it's Mount Gerizim. You see, her response is religion. And many times when the gospel convicts hearts, you know what people say? And I've had this happen many times. They'll say, wow, I got to start going to church. I haven't been to church since I was a kid. I got to start going to church. Or boy, I need to start giving to a homeless shelter. I need to start giving to things. I need to start serving in some way. There's something that I've got to do. Can you tell me how? Can you tell me what? Can you tell me, you know, what I can do for this? And I want you to notice here that Jesus patiently overcomes all of her responses. And he consistently, persistently keeps reeling her in until finally Jesus meets her at her deepest need. Let's look in verse 21. I love this. Woman, Jesus replied, Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and is now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. Here Jesus says to this woman, the religion that you know is worthless, man-made and worthless. You don't know the true God. And that's the problem. You don't know true worship. See, it's not religion that's going to meet your need. And can I share that with you? It's not religion that meets the need of our inmost heart. Religion can never meet that need. And here Jesus shows her the object of the gospel. It's not religion. Verse 25. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. And then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Amen? I am he. This is the object of the gospel. Jesus is not just claiming he is Messiah the way she's thinking, the understanding of Messiah. He's also claiming that he is the great I am, that he is divinity, that he is God. And this is the climax of the whole chapter because the whole purpose of John's gospel is to show that Jesus is God in human flesh. What is Jesus doing? He's showing that it's not religion that's going to meet your need. 
It's a relationship with me, the Son of God, that's going to meet your need. You see, the gospel, it's so beautiful. It's not doing something that will meet the need of your heart. It's meeting me. It's trusting in me. It's having a relationship with me that will in turn transform you. Amen? Sometimes it takes appeal after appeal after appeal. It takes reeling and reeling and reeling until you get a person to this place. But how blessed it is when you get to this place. Amen? The third point, and this is where I close, is our Lord encouraged every one of his disciples to live a lifestyle of evangelism. You see, missional evangelism is our life's work here on earth. Let's look in verse 27. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman, but no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Verse 28. Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town, all of them, and made their way toward him. Verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples urged him, Rebbe, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Verse 33. Then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? Now picture this scenario. Jesus has just revealed to the woman who he is. He is the great I am. He is the one promised. He is Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah. She goes back and tells the whole town. The whole town in droves comes out to meet Jesus. Jesus knows this. He's preparing himself for this. He's excited about this. Now the disciples come back from their food run. They don't know anything about this, and they are intent on feeding Jesus, right? And Jesus uses the mashal, I have food coming. Then the disciples look at each other and say, could someone have brought him food? At first glance, we acknowledge the concern of the disciples, good disciples, for wanting to feed Jesus. But the writer, John, is getting to something deeper. He's getting to the point of the whole story. And here's the point. The disciples never saw the Samaritan woman. They never saw her. Now, sure, they physically saw her, right? The Bible says they're surprised to see Jesus talking with the Samaritan woman. But what I'm saying is they never saw her as a potential disciple for the kingdom of God. Jesus had been sharing all throughout his ministry to the disciples, the kingdom has come. The kingdom was the thing God was most concerned with. That God was ushering people into the kingdom. That Jesus' whole ministry was about bringing people into his kingdom. The kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom. Yet it doesn't occur to these disciples that this woman could be one of those people for the kingdom. Why? Why? Well, think about the disciples' mindset. All of them, or most of them, were all Galilean fishermen, except for a few, right? And most all of them were good, upstanding Jews, except for Matthew. He's a tax collector, right? Now, where do all good Jews go from the time they're little? They go to synagogue. Who teaches in the synagogue? The Pharisees. What did the Pharisees teach in the synagogue? The godly Jews were chosen people. The chosen people of God. And godly Israelites should only hang out with other godly Israelites. They should form a chosen people bubble. And you need to save your faith for others who live in this bubble. Because in the bubble, it's good. You're given godly resources. You're taught God's word. You have discipleship. You have programs. You're strength, it'll strengthen your faith. 
and do as much mingling only with those that are in the bubble. Because we don't want to get contaminated with the filth of this world, do we? And when you go to the marketplace and you have to come in contact with filth in your work or business, keep your faith to yourself until you get back in the bubble. Because the bubble is good. What happens when you live this way? You keep your personal life disconnected from your life in the world. With this kind of mindset, no wonder they didn't see this woman. They didn't see her for God's coming kingdom. They didn't even think that she would even accept the kingdom. The bottom line is they didn't think it a priority to expend the energy. You know what Jesus' mindset was? It's radically different. His mindset was break that bubble. Amen? Verse 34 and 35. My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying, it's four months until harvest? I tell you, open your eyes. Look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. What is Jesus telling his disciples in no uncertain terms? He's saying, hey, listen, disciples, go out and get them. Go out into the harvest and get them. Open your eyes. I want you to see everyone as a potential. Tax collectors and prostitutes and Samaritans and Gentiles. Everyone is a potential for the kingdom of God that he is preparing. Usher them in. They're all a harvest field ready to enter the kingdom of God. What is Jesus saying? He is saying, spend the priority of your life, disciples. And you and I, we're disciples. That's who we are. Spend the priority of your life and the majority of your time in the harvest field. Amen? All of us have a harvest field. All of us have a sphere of influence. We are to go out into that harvest field. You see, evangelism is really the reason why we're still on this earth. I love what John MacArthur says. Why are we still on this earth? We could worship better in heaven, right? I mean, these guys here were pretty good, weren't they, right? But they're not better than the angels, right? Gabriel could probably do better, right? Amen? I know the praise team's not saying anything, but amen. All right. All right. We could study God's word better in heaven. Who would you rather have teaching you, Jesus or me? Jesus, right? We could do church better in heaven because we won't have sins that entangle us all the time. We could realize our gifts better in heaven because we'll have our glorified selves. We could serve God better in heaven because God could be showing us and perfecting us and teaching us how to serve. We can do everything better in heaven except for one thing, and that is God calls us here on this earth because we still have a great commission to do. We're still called to usher people into the kingdom. One day we'll be in the kingdom, but for now there are many who are lost who are not in the kingdom. You know the problem is Christian, you and I, we have a chosen bubble of our own, don't we? And we love to live in it. And we're very content with it. And we we like to raise our family in it. And if we're not careful, we can be like these good, upstanding Jews who we have a bubble and we forget that God doesn't call us to a bubble. God calls us to mobilize an army to break the bubble and to go out and to reach people for Jesus Christ. Amen? You are a missionary. You are an evangelist. It's not just Billy Graham. God took Billy Graham home, didn't he? But sometimes we think, oh, Billy Graham, right? This man, we got to let him go to do his thing and he'll reach millions. You know, God is not so concerned with Billy Graham. He loves him, of course, as much as he's concerned with each and every one of you 
who you have a web of relationships. You have places of influence where God is calling you to make a difference, to reach out to those people that God has called you to. Amen? Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Let's allow the Holy Spirit to speak to us this morning. Jesus calls us into his harvest field. The harvest is plentiful, but sadly the laborers are few. Will you commit this morning to being an evangelist? Because that's who you are. To being a missionary. Because that's your calling. To being a co-laborer in the harvest. Will you make it your lifestyle? Will you share in your everyday lives? Will you courageously break cultural, ethnic, outcast barriers? Will you persevere in sharing and praying for those people that you know are in your lives that don't know Jesus? Brothers and sisters, will you commit to this? Father, we ask that you would speak to us afresh and anew. That you would not allow John chapter 4 to be some historical story but that you would allow it to be the living word of God, your love letter to us, your express will in our lives. Lord, would you raise up a soldier ready to do the work of ministry. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen, amen. At this time, uh, we are going to take uh, the offering And uh, you are familiar with this. I'm not as familiar. So, you know, um, please uh, give me some grace as I lead us. Um, The person that you spoke with in the beginning, if you could be their partner. And at this time, if we could take the beauty of communion, the picture of the intimacy we have with Jesus Christ, where the body and the blood are represented in the bread and the cup. And you will take this time. It's a serious time. Examine your heart. If you're not a believer, we ask that you refrain from this. But if you are a believer, search your heart. Confess sins because he is faithful and just to forgive. Prepare your hearts. And after you're ready, there are stations here. Please take of the Lord's Supper with us. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for the sacrifice that you've given at the cross that gives us eternal life, that gives us a relationship with you. We pray that as we eat the flesh and drink the blood, that we show your death, burial, and resurrection until you